What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Dan Favalli. Remember to search Blue Wire Buckets in iTunes or Spotify for more NBA content. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Hardwood Knock Podcast. I am Dan Favalli, now your third favorite co-host around these parts. I will not be joined by Andy or Mo today. I am, however, super excited to be joined by Adam Spinella. You may know him as Spins, if only because I call him that all the time. He is the Dickinson College assistant men's basketball coach and a staff writer for the basketball writers. If you are not following him on Twitter, I suggest you fix that post-haste. He is at Spinella14, that's at S-P-I-N-E-L-L-A 14. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I am at Dan Favalli, F-A-V-A-L-E. The show is at Hardwood Knox on Twitter. You should also be following my fantastic co-hosts. Mo DeKeel can be found at Mo DeKeel underscore MBA. That's at M-O-D-A-K-H-I-L underscore MBA. Andy is at Andrew D. Bailey, spelled as always exactly like it sounds. I just want to continue asking, reminding, begging, imploring everyone to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes if you have not done so already. We can also be found wherever else you are consuming your podcasts. However, iTunes remains the best way to let us know that you are out there, that you are listening, and that we are not yelling into the great unknown void. If you have rated, reviewed, and subscribed to us, we ask that you recommend us, put the word out there, steal people's phones, and subscribe them to our podcast. They will thank you later. Last but not least, if you have not checked out the other great podcast that Blue Wire has to offer, you should also change that immediately. Blue Wire is pumping out great NBA, NBA draft, and NFL content on the regular. They will be expanding to other sports as well. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Wire Pods. With all of that now out of the way, we get to some in-depth NBA draft reaction talk and some free agency talk with Adam Spinella, a.k.a spins hello everyone welcome back to the hardwood Knox podcast i am dan favalli coming at you without either one of my co-hosts mo dekeel or andrew d bailey i am however super excited to be joined by good friend of the podcast he is the dickinson college assistant men's basketball coach and a staff writer for the basketball writers adam spinella we can call him Spins because that it seems like a fantastic nickname that I'm not sure if it caught on, but Spins is a great nickname. Adam Spinella, you can follow him on Twitter at Spinella14. Again, he's the Dickinson College assistant men's basketball coach and a staff writer for the basketball writers. They've pumped out great work. Um, they're doing good stuff over there. Check them out. Follow them at B-Ball Writers. And once more broken record styled, Adam Spinella is at Spinella14. By the timing of this podcast dropping, you can probably guess that we're taking a break from our singular team deep dives, although Adam was on the 
uh, Orlando Magic podcast. That was a fun one to do, so be sure to check that out. But we are going to just react to the NBA draft. Um, it was wild. The lead-up to it was crazy. Lots of transactions. This was a tough class to peg. Adam covered it in depth for the basketball writer, so I'm excited to pick his brain. First and foremost, though, Spins, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Dan. I haven't got a rousing introduction like that in a long, long time, so appreciate that very much, my friend. Uh, but uh, again, the draft was in some ways predictable and in some ways unpredictable, but you know, I think everybody is sleep deprived and trying to grasp at straws to try to figure out exactly what happened last night. And hopefully you and I can help parse through things. Yeah, it started, uh, it was funny that it seemed, it seemed like from a perspective of NBA fans, they thought right up before the, uh, Indiana Phoenix trade, they were unhappy with the a level of action and thought it was a little bit dormant and that was just the casual fans and then there was a, a like a sector of NBA Twitter and the writers just thought that there were too many rumors flying around so it was interesting to see that juxtaposition and then all hell just sort of breaks loose a couple hours before the draft like it starts with the Indiana Phoenix trade um the New Orleans Atlanta uh swap where Atlanta moves up to number four and then how that ties into the Lakers maybe being able to expand the Anthony Davis trade just a bunch of wild stuff and I don't remember the final count but there there was like more than half of the picks that were dispersed like ended up being traded before the draft actually began before or during it and so that's that's just absolutely that's incredible yeah there's always some movement especially in the second round and a couple teams and I talk about things called draft ledges. Uh, I think a lot of times people who rank prospects going into the draft do draft tiers, you know, uh, franchise caliber players, all-star players, good role players and starters, simple role players, et cetera, et cetera. And there are times in the draft when there's a huge ledge where the drop-off from one tier to the other is a little bit large. If you're sitting at the bottom of that, you're always a, a trade down type of candidate to a team that is looking to grab a guy that they're infatuated with that they hope uh, they can snag because they don't think he'll be there when they're on the clock. But there was a lot of rumor and, and innuendo surrounding the draft this year. And I, I mean, looking at it right now, I believe there were five lotter six lottery picks that were traded in, in general, five of them uh, traded on draft night or within this past week window. So it's a lot of movement to digest. And it started with the Mike Conley trade. Uh, he is now a member of the Utah Jazz. That kind of felt like something that was fait complete. where I don't know if it was how close it was at the trade deadline, but he was just so heavily linked to Utah. And then you look at what kind of transpired in Golden State with those rash of injuries just sort of opening the door for every team in the West. And this felt like the right time for the Grizzlies to make such a move. The deal was um, the Grizzlies sent Mike Conley to the Utah Jazz in exchange for Corver, Jay Crowder, Grayson Allen, the 23rd pick in Thursday's draft, which uh, I don't even have that in front of me. What did, did they end up flipping it or trading it? I can't even Yeah, remember. they did. They flipped that to Oklahoma City, and they moved up two spots to 21. Oh, yeah, Brandon, Cla uh, Brandon Clark, yep. duh. Took on Brandon Clark. So they end up with Brandon Clark as a result of that trade. Um, they also received – a for protected first round pick in 2020 that will become, I think, lightly protected. It's lottery protected in 2020, 2021, and then the protections sort of loosen in the years to come thereafter that. I think the initial before the draft, I thought people were a little bit too low 
on the return that Memphis was getting. And it had to be like, the Jazz got a steal. And I think, I do think this was a trade that the Jazz had to make. I think it was great value for them. But there was an opportunity cost because Mike Conley turns 32 before the start of next season, owed $67 million over the next two years. Um, the expense in the short term, that's actually probably just fine because it's not a three or four year commitment, but you used up a ton of your cap space. And so if you're planning on keeping Derek Favors, you now essentially have the room exception of $4.7 million to go out and flesh out the rest of your rotation. And I do think that there's a hole there with Crowder gone. Uh, You could argue that they might need just more proven shooters in general too, but Crowder was just so important to those small ball four lineups. And now you look at it from Memphis's side, uh, they not only have the potential to maybe trade Corver or Crowder as well, but now you make that play to get Brandon Clark and you have Jaron Jackson Jr. And if you end up keeping Jay Crowder, you end up re-signing um, DeLon Wright and you have Kyle Anderson, that's a team that could really just make some defensive noise. So I'm just curious what your thoughts 48, 72 hours later from this trade ended up being. I think for the Jazz... Uh... It's it's a steep price that they've paid in order to get Mike Conley because if you think about it, you're getting him for two, maybe three years of still prime basketball. They gave up a decent amount of picks, a, a solid young player, a guy I'm not overly sold on in Grayson Allen, but a solid young player. And then two role guys that would help push them over the edge next year if they had been able to hang on to them. Um, but th- this is the cost of doing business. And you, you hit the nail right on the head at the beginning with the way that Golden State and Houston are unraveling, so to speak. Just There's inexplicable a, what's gone on in Houston. I'm sorry. It, that just it's nuts. Inexplicable. <laughs> it's nuts. And and with that, you have to take a look at the two teams that have been atop the Western Conference for the last few years and say, this is our time. This is our opportunity. So if you're in the, the shoes of a Utah or a Portland, like absolutely, time to be aggressive and try to shake things up a little bit to add that championship caliber type talent that puts you over the edge. So I understand why Utah had to make the move now. And if leverage is not necessarily on their side, they still needed to uh, overpay a little bit. I think you, you can look at the trade from the Jazz perspective as it's better to overpay slightly to put yourself in the championship game than it is to not overpay at all and continue to win 47 to 50 games every year. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. And I just, I guess I just, the big question, as I've said before, is, can they end up finding that combo wing on the cheap in free agency or is George Yang ready for just more minutes? He, he shot the ball well last year and he, he had some pretty good postseason moments for them, I believe. So maybe if you're sold on him being ready for an actual everyday real minutes role as he goes into, I think this is going to be year four mm-hmm. uh, for him. That's, that's something that you could look to, and, and then maybe that makes it a little bit easier to stomach the cost. Uh, beyond that, I was trying to come up with targets for them to chase in free agency, and it's just for what they need, the demand of what it's going to be. It, normally, you're, the room exception is just it's going to be outstripped by what other teams had. And so I came up with names like uh, Wilson Chandler, uh, maybe Darius Miller. He's not going to do much for you defensively, but he's been one of the most efficient three-point shooters um, over the past two years. So those are just the names that I think they're probably looking at now. Even a Reggie Bullock is probably too expensive for them. At this yeah, point. It's, they're they're in a tough spot now because not only did they give up some picks in order to get Conley, but Crowder and Corver are incredibly versatile wing pieces that they can use. Corver just puts so much stress on defenses because he's elite at one skill. 
And Crowder is, he's not going to hurt you on offense as long as he knows what his role is and plays within a system. And he's a very, very strong defender. They're missing that small ball four right now. So, you know, we talk about shooting, we talk about small ball fours. They're going to be able to make like a massive impact. Uh, It's pretty tough departures for Utah in that regard. But again, you you talk about it. This is what you play for. This is what you have a really good roster for so that you can make an aggressive move to vault yourself if you believe that's going to get you in championship contention. The last thing I'll say on this is that it's funny that Grayson Allen was basically a superior to Gordon Hayward when he was playing summer league last year. And then, you know, fast forward almost a year later, and there were just so many jazz fans that were like, they gave up nothing. Grayson Allen's terrible. These picks aren't going to be whatever. So that was just a very interesting transition of feelings among a sector of jazz fans. I won't, I won't dare to put all of them under the same. (laughs) It's just how it works in the NBA. You know, uh, one season seems like an eternity from us on the outside who are following it. And it's like, you know what? Be patient with these guys. Like it's an adjustment period going from, from college to the pros, no matter how old or how ready you appear to be. Um, Phoenix might've done some stuff uh, on draft night as well. They began with, a curious move, I will say, where they, they salary-dumped T.J. Warren to the Pacers. They gave them um, not only Warren, but the number 32 pick as well at the time. And then they go on and they trade down in the draft. Um, they give up number 6 for, I think it was Dario Saric, and number 11 from the Minnesota Timberwolves. And then they take Cameron Johnson at number 11, much to the surprise of everyone, as they've pointed out, uh, Cam Johnson is older than Devin Booker. Um, he's a good shooter, but he doesn't give you much in the way of b- ball handling. Uh, I don't think people have been high on what he's going to be able to do as a wing defender, nor does he really have the size to, you know, he could end up being one of those one position guys. Maybe you get away with him at the two and three, but he could end up being one of those one position guys. Um, they also acquired... Aaron Baines, which for the time being, uh, nuked the idea that they were trying to like clear the deck of cap space. Dario Sarge started to a little bit because they took on money in a, a little bit of money in that trade, obviously. But everyone thought they were trying to carve out max room to get um, go after a D'Angelo Russell or maybe someone else. And so right now they do not once again do not have a cap space to do that. They come close if they renounce Kelly Oubre Jr. and Rachon Holmes, but at least with Oubre, that doesn't seem like something they want to do just so many moving parts for them on draft night and I'm wondering if what your I think the initial thoughts at least from most people and including myself was just the Suns have to put it kindly weirded up their situation and to put it forcefully they may have fucked up um, some people have talked themselves into what they've done a little bit more I'm just curious where you land on Phoenix's draft day activity after having some time to let it marinate yeah they they better have some sort of under the table handshake agreement with a point guard out there, or otherwise this is pretty much going to blow up in their face a little bit. Um, you know, I, I'm not, it, and we'll we'll probably talk about this in greater detail. But some of the moves that they made on their own, I love. Some of them on their own, I really don't love. And because of that, I don't know what to make of the entire smorgasbord of uh, transactions taking place in Phoenix. Like I, I love that they got Dario Saric. I think value-wise, I don't love the sixth overall pick. So, you know, trading down, getting 11 and Sarge, awesome move. I love, love, love Ty Jerome. I think that he was an awesome, sneaky acquisition that they were able to get from Boston when they got up to 24. 
And I'm not that high on TJ Warren. So like I, I take a look at all of those things. You're able to get off of Warren, take Sarich, and end up with a, a guy who's probably going to be the steal of the draft, in my opinion, and Ty Jerome. I should love what Phoenix is doing right now, but they have open holes in their backcourt. They made the biggest reach of the night at 11 by going and, and getting Cam Johnson, who great shooter, ready to play right now. He's long, got, got this, this massively quick and long, high three-point shooting stroke, but he couldn't defend a soul at North Carolina. And that's just that's worrisome to me when you put him next to Devin Booker on the wing. Do you think that Ty Jerome at all mitigates the urgency to go out and sign a point guard or a primary playmaker in free agency this summer or not at all? I don't think it does because Jerome to me is is a guy that he's very good with the ball in his hands, but he's just as good off it. And he's a guy who, because he, if he plays with other good guards who also command attention from the defenses that with the ball in their hands, that he's going to be able to get open and have a lot more value. So I like him similar. I, I know I, I hate comparing guys that have easy comparisons because they look alike or went to the same school or left-handed, whatever. But Ty Jerome and Malcolm Brogdon, I, I think Jerome should thrive in the type of role that Malcolm Brogdon has had in Milwaukee, where he's a spot starter or a guy that comes off the bench, just super versatile. But you're not going to win a lot of games if you're playing your offense consistently through him. I do think they need one other piece and more of a either a defensive minded point guard that uh, eases the burden on him and Booker or a guy that's just going to be able to to make shots and space the floor while Booker plays with the ball in his hands. What did you think about them having to include that Milwaukee pick in uh, in the deal for Aaron Baines that got the number 24? It was, a, it was basically, uh, what did it end up being? It ended up being 20. They sent that Milwaukee Bucks pick to Boston for number 24 and Aaron Baines. Again, like in a vacuum, I like these moves because I really like Ty Jerome. I think at 24, he's awesome value. And Aaron Baines is probably the perfect backup big man for DeAndre Ayton because the thing with Baines, he's a really, really good teammate. He does all of the dirty work and all the little things, which is going to rub off on Ayton over the long term. But he's expanded his range. He's getting close to really consistently making corner threes. He knocks down all of his free throws. He's just a rugged, tough veteran, and if they're trying to turn the corner soon and win games, Baines is the exact right kind of you know, gamble that you take when you're when you're trying to bring somebody back into a trade. But none of these moves can be examined in a vacuum because they still have this massive hole on their roster, and I still think that the the pieces, when they all fit together, are just a little bit clunky. Is there what would you put more of a priority on a defensive minded point guard or one like you said space of the floor with his shooting and then I think by extension you want again you want that point guard to be a playmaker but you also don't want to take the ball out of Devin Booker's or or now you know Ty Jerome's hand so is it more important to if you had a tilt towards one or the other for Phoenix are you just more seeking the defensive aspect at the point guard position or are you just hoping for someone who can blend playing on the ball with also working off of it yeah, I think a large part of it is dependent on the fact that they really struggle to attract high-level free agents to Phoenix. I mean, I don't really remember the last time a marquee name went to Phoenix. I know LaMarcus Aldridge was close a few years ago, but it's it's going to be really hard for them to get one of the all-star caliber guys. So 
D'Angelo Russell, I mean, if you can get him, you pr- you obviously make a swing on talent. And he and Booker are probably just too good of a shooting backcourt combination to say no to. Like, you find a way to make it work. You get other wing defenders and switchable guys that can continue to guard uh, and, and take away their assignments. But if you don't get D'Angelo Russell and something doesn't work out there, I, I think Patrick Beverly would be the perfect fit for this team just because – He's he's solid on offense in an off-ball role. You're playing through Booker. You're playing through Jerome. And he's going to eat up every single uh, top pr- defensive perimeter assignment that he's given. I wonder if – so I have them between 11 and $12 million in cap space at the moment. Um, yep. Whether they salary dump Aaron Baines or find a taker for Josh Jackson, they can also – if they renounce – I have them renouncing Rashawn Holmes now, but mm-hmm. keeping Ke- Kelly Oubre Jr. A name that I thought of because I'm wondering if Patrick Beverly ends up being too expensive for them. Um, yeah. At least in the sense where you might be able to throw all your cap room at him, but is that something that you really want to do? Or, you know, is there be, is are the Bulls going to go out there and give him a balloon two-year payment, which is something that I think they should ap- absolutely do, by the way. A name that I thought of for them, it's not going to help their defense, but Thomas Sadoransky who mm-hmm. has the size of a wing and can play point guard. And he spent so much time working off the ball in Washington. Yeah. I think he ended up shooting last year. He was at 39% on catch and shoot threes around there. So he's someone he's restricted, but Washington is doesn't even have a permanent general manager in place. So does, a, does an 11 or $12 million per year offer sheet really get them to, or maybe something a little bit less really get them to think twice about keeping him. Right. Yeah. And, and I, uh, I definitely overestimated the amount of cap space that Phoenix has available because I, I think I was just looking at the numbers post the TJ Warren salary dump where I'm thinking, okay, they're putting themselves in position to really, you know, add salary through free agency. They want to make a run at this. And then they take back with Baines and Sarge probably a, a little bit over 10 million. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I'm not sure what type of targets they're going to be able to, to get at that spot, which again is, is why, these draft day moves altogether are a little bit head scratching. The other big trade to talk about was between the Pelicans and the Atlanta Hawks, which might end up becoming part of the Anthony Davis trade. If, uh, if the Lakers can make it work, uh, that, that whole situation is just a cluster. You know what, but the Pelicans traded number four, Solomon Hills expiring deal, number 57 and a future second to Atlanta for number eight, number 17 and number 35 number 35 and that protected first from Cleveland in 2020 which is going to become two second round picks unless the Cavaliers are just bonkers good with that Darius Garland uh Colin Sexton backcourt I think it's of note here so the Hawks take um DeAndre Hunter at number four but I really liked the Pelicans draft when you look at who they were able to get I don't think necessarily that Jackson Hayes at number eight is the perfect fit next to Zion Williamson maybe if he can develop a mid-range game, but just adding to the athleticism, the explosion you have on your roster. I was more excited, as I told you at the start of the pod, there's always a player or two that I fall in love with ahead of the draft that is, they might sometimes fall inside the top 10, but normally they're outside of it, and I just think he's going to end up outperforming his draft stock. This year, the winner, or loser, depending on how you look at it, is Nikhil Alexander-Walker, who the Pelicans scooped up at number 17. I think he's going to end up being a fantastic fit. He was one of the guys that I watched more film on than anyone. And I get that you're going to worry about, does he have the just, you know, burst to really create for himself Mm -hmm. in the half court. But Mm -hmm. he, he, when you watch him, he seems like he has a good feel. 
for the game. And he can just knock down shots at, at all levels, whether it's off the catch or off the dribble. I think you can use him, particularly when you're on the Pelicans and you don't need him to be the, the one or the two guy. He can be that tertiary playmaker. So I think he's going to end up being really good. And that made me love the the extension, the, the branch off this Anthony Davis trade tree even more for New Orleans. They had they had a really good night, and uh, obviously we knew they were going to when they got Zion Williamson number one overall because he's just such a franchise changer. But you know, if I could he look at feels it, during his speech too, I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, he did, he did, and and my girlfriend was a big fan of him because uh, he helped his mother down the stairs. That was her I favorite saw that tweet. <laughs> draft night. Yeah, it was her favorite moment of the draft night. Oh, what a sweet guy he is. But uh, I mean, if I could spin this first from the Atlanta perspective, just real quickly. Uh, we mentioned that there are ledges sometimes in, in during the draft process that from one tier as it falls off to another, there's this ledge. And I thought that there was a very large ledge after that third overall pick. Um, I'm much higher on Darius Garland than most. I would put him kind of as like the the only guy at number four. But even after that, I think it goes from franchise stars and, and guys that can be the face of a franchise because of their transcendent athleticism, offense, whatever, down to a bunch of guys whose ceiling is essentially maybe one all-star, maybe two all-star appearances. Like there's not a lot of a high level upside for guys that are going to be picked four through 10 or, or 12. And that's what makes this draft a little bit weaker in comparison to years past where there, you can see there's, some all-star upside to guys that are still being taken in the later parts of the lottery. So with that in mind, I was really frustrated to see how many teams made decisions to move up and to trade to take guys at four or six. And and that's one area for Atlanta. Like I like the players that the Hawks got. I really like DeAndre Hunter and his fit in Atlanta. And I think that they were right in saying they needed to get him. I love that Cam Reddish fell to them at 10. I think that he's one of those guys that's being slept on a little bit just because he didn't have a great year at Duke. But they gave up a lot in order to move up to four. And whenever you market your future with trading multiple draft picks in order to consolidate and get one guy that you really like, you better make sure that he has a lot of offensive upside and you better make sure that he's a guy that is going to be some at some point a perennial all-star candidate. And as much as I like Hunter's game and fit with Atlanta, I don't get the sense that he's that guy. So there were some kind of frustrating moments where, again, we talked about it with Phoenix, like one individual move I really like. I like the guys that they end up with, but sometimes the price that you pay in order to get there, it, it just it doesn't seem like it fits really well. Yeah, I, th- I think I'm with you there. And so if Hunter ends up just not being sensational with them, I mean, you can argue they have the timeline to withstand it. And who would they have taken at number eight? It seems like he was going to go. He definitely wasn't going to get past the Cavaliers at five, it doesn't seem. Um, and if you were able to get the other guys, it seems like who they had targeted as well because you don't trade the 10 pick and you still get Cam Reddish. And if mm-hmm. you didn't have plans for your cap space this summer anyway, maybe it's a little bit easier to justify, but... I was I'm with you where it seems like they gave up a, I don't want to call it a ransom but it was definitely a tiny ransom to to jump up to to number 4. And it's it's all about leverage in in these situations. You know, we talk about this being a weak draft, so if you're trying to move up to 4 to get DeAndre Hunter, you're saying to yourself, "Okay, it's only DeAndre Hunter, like we can't sell the farm to get this guy." But on the flip side, if you're selling out of four, like all it takes is one team to show interest and make the call and say, what do we got to do to get up here? 
and all of a sudden New Orleans is calling the shots. So, I mean, hats off to David Griffin. What he has done in about a month on the job for the Pels has been absolutely outstanding. Like he has asset managed up the wazoo. He definitely tricked the Lakers into something that their uh, their own ineptitude kind of forced. Um, but I mean, David Griffin has the New Orleans Pelicans in really, really, really good shape over the long term. Uh, I'm with you. I don't love the fit of Jackson Hayes there just because he's a he's a non-shooting big, and I think Zion needs as much space as possible in order to to be at his best. But I mean, when it, I'm with you, you get three first round picks, and one of them Zion, and the other one is a guy like Nikhil Alexander Walker, who's kind of the perfect complement to him in terms of his shooting and secondary playmaking ability this is going to be a really Im- important day for the pelicans franchise for a long long time and it's not like they have i'm excited to see this roster but it's not like they have a ton of other shooting in general right and ingram and drew holiday aren't the greatest shooters ingram shot the lights out towards the end of last year um before he had the, the blood clots he was dealing with lonzo ball's been you know hot and cold from beyond the arc at points so there there are going to be um questions there i'd like to see them add maybe a floor spacing big and they're gonna have if they want to basically max cap space and so a name i settled on them uh maxi kleba might be interesting there because mm-hmm. he can play with either jackson hayes or zion williamson as and he can probably play the four or the five so that's yeah. something they should yeah. probably add the other trade that i want to ask you about was it happened the night before draft night um detroit gets tony snell and the number 30 pick which they then sent to cleveland for for four seconds and that pick yeah. became kevin porter jr Milwaukee gets John Lohr. The the Bucks they they shaved a little bit of salary commitments this this summer, and they're now at the point where I have them. If you carry Brogdon's cap hold and and Middleton's cap hold, um, you can now create. I think it's like fourteen million in cap space and and a little bit more depending on what you do with your non guaranteed contracts uh, yeah. that you have on the books. And so now you can re-sign Brook Lopez, then go over the cap to. Keep Middleton, Brogdon. Uh, you're going to have to lose Miritich in this scenario, and you're obviously waving George Hill as well. What they really yep. seem to also be doing is gearing up to pay this core beyond next season because Lure's contract comes off the books a year earlier. So, never. I'm wondering what you think of that. And this comes as someone who's never going to like commend teams really for <laughs> avoiding luxury tax bills. And then right. um, for the the Pistons, I they needed wings. And so Tony Snell has an occasionally really good defensive motor and he's, he's not going to do stuff with the ball on the floor, but he can hit threes. And so I liked that. I was a little bit curious why they then flipped uh number 30 for four seconds to Cleveland, particularly when you look at who was still on the board where Kevin Porter jr. Was listed as a lottery yeah. prospect. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll deal first things first with Milwaukee here. I think that no team has a more predictable summer ahead of them than the Bucks, just in terms of what their organizational imperatives are. They have to be able to shed some sort of salary. And George Hill with, I believe he only has one, maybe a little over $1 million guaranteed on his yeah. salary next year. So being able to to waive him, is it, it's almost a no-brainer. We all know that that's going to happen. We all know that Miritich, who was basically unplayable in the postseason for stretches, is a guy that they're going to they're gonna move on from, even though they, they gave up a little bit to get him this past February. Um, but they're creating a little bit of cap space to get Brooke Lopez, and then knowing that they're willing to recommit to this core that was the best team in the NBA during the regular season, as well they should. Um, I, I'm 
a little bit curious with the John Lure move. They have two options here. One is obviously keeping him on the books for this year, letting that expire next summer and having just a little bit more money. But if you're, from my perspective, if you know you're still going to be over the cap next summer and Lure coming off the books in 2020 doesn't create you any additional cap space, why not just stretch him now? And that gives you about three, three and a half million extra this summer to use, which you can either pay for a little bit extra for Brooke Lopez or go out there and get one additional piece if you can get Brooke to take some sort of a discount. The um, Cleveland with getting Kevin Porter Jr., I that's very aggressive with the second round picks that they gave up. And also when you yeah. already had Darius Garland and Colin Sexton on the board. I know he's the swing for the fences play, but that team needs wings badly. Uh, again, number 30, but the four second round pick price tag. And then I was I was a little bit surprised that the Pistons um, actually gave up that spot when Kevin Porter Jr. was still on the board. Um, was there a side? Do you have any strong feelings for one of them in this scenario? Would you have liked Kevin Porter Jr. more in Detroit? Because I feel like I would have. Then again, would they have given him any playing time? So... Uh, I'm just very curious if you had any impressions on that trade whatsoever because it felt like a little bit of a left field one for me. Yeah, it, it was, I'm still not really sure what to make of it. Uh, I think a lot of it depends on what those second-round picks really are, what their protections are, when they come due, et cetera. Um, but obviously Cleveland gave up a lot to get Kevin Porter Jr. And just a, a quick aside from me, I had kind of two players on my – my list of, of guys that were in this draft class that no matter what pick they were available at, I just wouldn't touch. I don't think it's worth it. And Porter Jr. was one of them. Um, I'm not sold on his playing style being one that fits into a, a winning team or a winning program. Um, he's really good in isolation. He has a ton of upside as a scorer. He shot the ball well from three. He's got length. He's got a lot of athleticism. Like There's so many things when you watch him play, he should be a a lottery pick he's a lottery talent but when you sit down and examine okay why is he not playing more at usc why is his role not not grown where are his shots coming from why isn't he getting to the rim and taking more shots at the rim there's just a lot of things there to unpack and you know he was suspended from the team for a a point in time this year i think that's still a, a, a fairly large mystery at least to us out here on on the outside looking in uh, he was one of those guys I just I, I couldn't really look at and say I would love to take this guy. So for Cleveland, I'm not I, I don't love it just because they gave up so much and so much cash in order to trade up for an, an opportunity at a guy who a I wouldn't have wanted anyway and b is a little bit redundant next to some of the other picks they've made the last year or so. I guess the understated part of this too is so the Pistons already kind of took a little bit, of, I shouldn't say a little bit, they took a project in Sekou Demboya, whose mm-hmm. name I, I undoubtedly butchered there. You but, got it. All right, I'm still learning with these guys. I try to study up, but so Sekou Demboya. And then you took on a little bit of salary in that Tony Snell trade, and so getting out of the number 30 pick commitment, this sounds stupid, but it saves you. I think it's almost $2 million at this yep. point. So you make up that difference, and it's going to give them – more of a chance to if they want to, you know, re-sign a Schmidt and then still use the non-taxpayers mid-level exception. So uh, evaluating it from that perspective isn't bad. What's up, Blue Wire listeners? This is Jack from the Real Underscore Sports Podcast, a Snapchat sports pod. 
We recently ranked as the number one sports podcast on all of iTunes, all of Apple. We cover all things from the NBA draft, from NBA free agency. We're working on MLB this summer, as well as the NFL offseason. Catch me and my co-host Abe on the Real Underscore Sports Podcast, a Snapchat sports pod, a part of the wonderful Blue Wire Podcast Network. Getting really away from the, the trade aspects of it, although these are smaller transactions than they were trades, were you, one, surprised at how far Bobo fell? And does Miami selling him basically just reek of, you know, Pat Riley saying, well, I'm not going to be here in three or five years when, when, when this deal is going to matter? <laughs> uh, no, I, I, was, I was surprised that, that he fell to 44. I'm not surprised that he fell. Uh, a lot of the kind of sources and people that I've talked to around the league that that have monitored the situation around the draft process with him really kind of foresaw a bit of a slide. Um, they thought that he would probably end up going in the late 20s to the early 30s, that early part of the second round, where you don't want to spend a first round pick on a guy that has so many issues with his motor, his care, his drive, and then is also just a, a unique body that you, you don't really know what to wrap your mind around. Um, so I thought he would end up going in the early, like the first four or five picks in the second round because of that. But man, I mean, he he did fall quite, quite, quite far. And I don't think that Miami giving up on him is uh, has much to do with, with Pat Riley or his timeline or anything like that. I think that Denver at least has put themselves in a position where they have enough enough good young talent that essentially these draft picks are hey, let's swing for the fences a, a couple times, you know, two or three times in a, in a three-year span. And if one of them sticks, we look like geniuses. So, I mean, from that perspective, they did it with Porter. They're doing it with Bull Bull. I think that's a fine strategy for a team like that to, to take right now. It's definitely low risk. It's also a little bit of a flex where it's like, hey, we got Michael Porter Jr., former consensus number one prospect at 14 last year, and we're just going to go ahead and take – Bobol, who was, I think Tim Conley told ESPN Zach Lowe that Bobol was 10 on Denver's mm-hmm. draft board. And I would think that when he was healthy, that was a guy that was like right inside the top 10 of most mock drafts and big boards. So a little mm-hmm. bit, it's not, it's, it's again, it's risk-free when you look at their roster. Um, mm-hmm. Or maybe it's not entirely risk-free because now you're going to need to have a roster spot for him. And so that has value. But again, you already did this with Michael Porter Jr. So it's a little bit of a flex. Yeah, and 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 again, Denver plays such a unique style that I think a, a a place like that is an ideal landing spot for a guy like Bull Bull because they are as a as a coaching staff as a front office they're used to catering to guys that have unique talents. They've done that with Jokic. They don't necessarily have what's considered a pure point guard, and they haven't for a couple of years. Like the way that they play is so different. And the fit of him next to Jokic long term is, is kind of interesting. Now, I'm not even going to try and parse the details of the Boston Celtics transactions on air. <laughs> Here so we I go. I don't, I don't want to trip over it. But so they <sighs> end up with, after all is said and done, uh, Romeo Langford, Grant Williams, Carson Edwards, Tremont Waters, and more cap space, I guess we could call it, like clearer paths to, to more cap space. What did you think of how they actually drafted the talent they ended up with? I know NBA Twitter loved the the Grant Williams pick. But two, and more importantly, do you have any idea with what comes next over this summer for Boston? 
Well, the answer to that question is obviously no. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what they're going to do. How things like Terry Rozier drama is strange. The Kyrie Irving drama has always been strange. And then the latest news about Al Horford is that was a gut punch. Oh, it, it hurts. And I think when you take a look at their their roster, it's like, okay, what are the most obvious needs that they would have if both Horford and Irving left? And it's at the point, and it's at their five spot. Well, what do they do? Okay, they draft a combo guard who doesn't shoot the ball really well at 14, which makes him a, a little bit of a questionable fit next to guys like Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum. Then they don't take a, a big man. They actually trade away their big men to create a little bit more cap space, getting rid of Aaron Baines. They take a guy in Grant Williams who doesn't necessarily have a true position, and I really don't see him ever being able to play the five in meaningful minutes. And then they go out there and they get two of the smallest guys in the draft in Carson Edwards and Tremont Waters. So I, I, I'm all over the place on this. Like All four of those guys, talent-wise, I think they're, they're good. They're NBA players, but I don't know how they fit with the roster in Boston. And that makes me really scratch my head wondering what other changes are, are going to take place. And it's uh, and again, they can if Irving and Al Horford leave and they keep Rozier's capital, they're going to have more than twenty million in cash. I think they'll have close to twenty four. If he leaves, or if they renounce him, they can get to max room. I'm just what I don't know what free agents they're chasing. Are they really just having this room to you know divvy it up among a few solid guys to retain their own talent like Marcus Morris and Rozier without even having to worry about the luxury tax? I just have zero feel for where Boston is going at this point. And you just look at where they were when they signed, you know, even at the beginning of last season, but just from when they traded for Kyrie Irving after just signing Gordon Hayward mm -hmm. to where they are now in less than, in, in less than two years is just wild. Yeah. No, it's, it's crazy. I mean, what was it? Bill Simmons was saying 67 wins before the season. And now he's sitting on Twitter cursing out every decision that the Celtics make on draft night. And, and he hates Kyrie Irving more than anybody in the world. Like I'm not a huge Bill Simmons fan, but that it's just, it's indicative of the up and down roller coaster that it's been for the Celtics the last few years. Uh, I, I really like Romeo Langford. I, I think he's a good player. And, and I like that pick at 14 based on who was on the board still for Boston. I think that's a, that's a really good get for them there. Um, but man, like they need, they need a point guard and they need a big and, I know. I think Woj talked about it last night. Uh, Vucevic being a, a solid target if Al Horford does leave. I like that, but that means that you're pretty much bound to overpaying Terry Rozier to be your point guard if you're going to get Vooch, and that I really don't like. They seem to have this weird thing where they like will draft guys that aren't considered the best shooting coming out of college, even when the percentages are okay there. I mean, mm -hmm. Rozier... Jalen Brown and now Romeo Langford. I don't know what necessarily the logic is behind that. Maybe they just viewed them more as blank canvases or something. Um, Terry Rozier hasn't turned into a world-beating shooter to begin with. I mean, he's he shot over the past two seasons like 36% combined from three. But And, and neither has Marcus Smart, and he's, he's, yeah, that was the other fits one. in that same category. Yeah, yeah. so their offseason is going to be mega interesting, possibly also mega painful. Well, well with, with free agency in Boston I, – I, I mean, look, I grew up a Celtics fan, so, f so for full disclosure, like I've always rooted for the franchise, and and I be believed in Danny Ainge. He orchestrated this massive trade that was able to easily transition the Celtics from 
you know, the big three dynasty era to being sustainable over the long term. But he also has this reputation where there are these guys that are the heart of the locker room, the, the pulse of the franchise that everybody wants to run through a brick wall for. And he so easily is willing to give up on them and trade them. He did that with Isaiah Thomas. I think Aaron Baines is going to have that similar effect. Like if I'm a, a top tier free agent, I don't know how attracted I am to signing with Boston because A, look how they've squandered their opportunity the last few years. But B, I don't think loyalty is necessarily there from the organization to the player. And and that's something that's a, a really big deal. So if the Celtics are banking on creating more cap space and being able to go out there and get a top tier free agent that's going to keep them at the level they were at with Kyrie or even bring them higher – I'm just not sold on that strategy really coming to fruition. If if I were them, um, I would throw a max offer sheet at Malcolm Brockton because one, I think he's a player that fits with all 30 teams. Two, it's a clear overpay, but I feel like he's one of those contracts where as long as you don't mismanage the rest of your team, it's almost it's Otter Porter style where you won't come to regret it massively, even though it seems like the Wizards did. I just think they had other deals on their books that became even more immovable than his. And then three, if the Bucks match, then you've at least, I know it ties up your cap space for a little bit, but you just laid it out. Who else are the Boston Celtics getting? So there's the opportunity to then inflate the payroll of a conference rival. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's always pros and cons to that approach too. Um, and we saw that a little bit with Brooklyn when they have so long infatuated Alan Crabb during that year when the, the cap spiked and, now they had to pay in order to get him off so they could have cap space. Like there's always something that comes around and, and bites you at the end. If you do something like that, I'm not saying that they shouldn't necessarily, um, but it is something to be weary of. And especially for a team that's going to have max players and, and Jason Tatum and maybe, you know, Jalen Brown's going to command a hefty sum. Like if you keep those guys and you max out Malcolm Brogdon, you still have a couple years of Gordon Hayward on the books. Like I think that that's just really stuffy for the Celtics cap sheet and, and doesn't give them a ton of maneuverability and flexibility, which let's face it. That's what Danny Bange is all about. He <laughs> just wants to have as many, you know, as many cards in front of him that he can play as possible. Yeah. So that they could almost trade for a superstar and almost, <laughs> and almost consider trading Terry Rozier. And, and almost what was um, there was the almost on Serge Ibaka. There was even less. I wasn't, they almost moved up to number four. That was like, uh, flitted around after the fact. Um, well, it was uh, what was it Justice Winslow that they were and Frank Kaminsky guys that they were just completely enamored with in the draft process. Like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. They become a caricature, but it's when you think about all the moves that other executives and teams didn't make, even though maybe they wanted to. Like, I mean, you can find stuff like this for the Celtics are just a higher profile team, and they're again, they're. I said this. Their decision to not trade Jason Tatum for Anthony Davis under the circumstances is the correct one, without yep. question. It's yep. their open lust for years for Anthony Davis. That is the punchline. And I think that's where it really gets them into trouble, is that it was just assumed that they were going to end up getting this player, that they were always going to get these stars. And then as these big names trickled off the trade board, and, and they, you know, they did get Kyrie Irving, but they weren't involved on ostensibly the exact archetype of player that you want now. When you look at Butler, Paul George, and Kawhi Leonard, where they were never really in it for them, that's where the jokes, I think, are deserved and stem from. But there are, I think there are decisions 
that or decisions made and decisions not made that are easy to just pile up and go back and in hindsight just criticize organizations for. Yep, I, I agree with that. And and I think that when you look at how the Toronto Raptors are built or how some of the players on the Golden State Warriors that have been stalwarts to their franchise were acquired, like you have to nail draft picks when you have them in the twenties and thirties. Like you have to get really good productive players in order to to continue to be successful. And that's an area where I think Danny Ainge has struggled over his tenure as as a GM in Boston. He's done a fine job when they have some top picks at either taking them or maneuvering them for something else. But his track record is not very strong when it comes to taking guys outside the lottery. So um, again, like I'm not super high on Grant Williams in this draft. I'm not super high on Carson Edwards. I think they're both guys that are going to end up being better collegiate players than they are pros. So um, I like Langford. I think he's a good fit, but I still just, I can't get a grasp for what they're trying to accomplish up there in Beantown. Something and someone I cannot get a grasp for is RJ Barrett. Uh, Before we started podcasting, you were talking about how you were very much of the mind that, like people said, this was a three or maybe four star slash potential superstar draft and that rj barrett was one of the definitive three and you know if you expand it for four for darius garland what is his i just from what i saw of him and again people watch him way more than i did and then you look at the numbers his shot selection does not impress me um i know he showcased a little bit more as a passer when zion williamson was out what is his ceiling at the nba level can he actually be the cornerstone for a franchise and not just wow, this is a really good young player, but this is the, you know, 1A of a really good basketball team. I, I think that the amount of offensive polish that he has as a scorer definitely vaults him into that category. He has a, a well-rounded arsenal that not a lot of teenagers have. Uh, he score at all three levels. He creates his own shot. He's smooth, smooth, smooth release from three. And I think that's probably the area of his game that's most underrated is that he's going to be able to be an instant uh, shooter. So you can play him off the ball at times as he continues to take his lumps as being a guy that they the Knicks will play through. That said, you hit the nail on the head when you talked about decision-making, that his shot selection is just not there right now. He has every tool in his toolbox in order to to be the the guy that's averaging like 26 and 7 assists, 26 and 6 assists within an NBA offense. He's going to thrive with greater greater players around him. Um but my goodness, did he love to shoot? And for a guy that has the tools to be a great passer, it's really frustrating because there are games when you watch him play where he's getting 7, 8, 9 assists and is the focal point of of attention from opposing teams. And he makes every right read and every right pass and and is capable of doing so consistently. And then there are other games where he'll shoot 25 shots and have only two assists and just miss completely open teammates and try to do everything himself. It's it's frustrating. I think a lot of it can be chalked up to youth. Um, And at the end of the day, especially in a draft like this, where there's just not that high level scoring upside from players, you have to take that risk and and you have to take Barrett in one of those top three spots, because if he does work out, he's he is going to be that type of alpha male for a franchise. The big optimistic thing I've heard on him is just in, in, in quotes, imagine what he can do around NBA spacing. And so 
Yep. That'll be, I don't know if you can call what the Knicks have right now, NBA spacing or what they're um, teed up to do in free agency following Durant's injury, Kyrie Irving's dalliance with the Nets and Anthony Davis, obviously heading to the Lakers, but he's just someone I'm going to be really intrigued to watch. Again, I just have no idea or personally just no feel for how his game is going to end up translating to the NBA. And maybe if it was a different organization, I'd have more confidence, but it is the Knicks. But well, with with Barrett too, and this is one of the the tricky things about the draft and scouting process is I take a look at a player who loves to shoot and and score the basketball and, and misses some open teammates as a result, like Barrett. To me, that's not a winning habit, right? And and you worry about taking a guy like that. Like, yeah, he's going to produce, he's going to put up numbers, but is he going to be that guy on a playoff team? Is he going to be that guy on a championship contender? And with Barrett, he's won at every level he's ever played at. So it's it's a head scratcher for me because I I want to I want to scold him a little bit for some of the habits that he has, but his teams are always successful. He's a great competitor. He has the pedigree and and like I said, the toolbox is so full. He should be able to to harness all those skills and do do something really special with his career. And I guess the and I'm not sure if this is a fair concern. But you just look at how many players the Knicks have. As of right now, things could change that like to have the ball in their hands but aren't good passers. Uh, mm-hmm. Dennis Smith Jr., Kevin Knox, uh, Alonzo Trier, and now R.J. Barrett. I, Frank Neokina probably won't even be there anymore, and I actually yeah. like Frank Neokina. But so I just don't know. You know, we talk about NBA spacing. I don't know that the, the Knicks have it right now, number right. one. And then two, I'm just wondering if there's too much offensive overlap for them right now and not a clear enough pecking order. I guess if they establish one, it'll be fine. And then if they do go out and sign someone, uh, if it's Kevin Durant, you know, he's not playing next season. But if it's someone who, you know, if Kyrie Irving ends up going to the Knicks, how does that em- end up impacting R.J. Barrett? Because all of a sudden he's been moved down that indistinct pecking order. So it's just, I would have, I, I might have more confidence in what he'll look like if, if he ended up on a different team. And I won't go as far as to say any other team, but the Knicks are just, they're borderline directionless. Um, and again, the talent around him right now, you know, if he succeeds with it, good, maybe they turn him into the primary ball handler. He can, a lot of people have said that he could wind up being a, a lot better of a playmaker in the pick and roll. So I'm just yep. very curious to see how he turns out. Yeah, he, he has, he has that upside to be a, a really strong pick and roll player, but it, I, I, I get what you're saying there, Dan, like the best thing for RJ Barrett is for him to be the number one option within an offense because that's going to allow him to perform at his maximum capacity and, and be the most comfortable when he has the ball in his hands. The best thing for the Knicks franchise is if they have somebody else who's their primary scorer. And right now they can't really provide either because they're, if they get Durant, if they get Kyrie Irving, like those are big ifs. Uh, and then the other side of things they just you're right they don't have the shooting to surround Barrett so that he can be the most successful that he can be with the ball in his hands was there any other moves that you particularly liked in the draft a selection maybe ones that you didn't like a team that you didn't like what they did any team that you're especially concerned for following what happened on draft night um I really I mean certain teams stood still and were able to have players fall to them that they should absolutely take there uh, Portland with Nasir Little at 25, it's the appropriate risk for them to take and, and kind of the, the right guy for them. Um, really, the same thing goes for the Chicago Bulls with Kobe White at seven. They needed a, a point guard. He is the perfect fit for it next to 
next to their you know their entire roster essentially they're just going to be able to shoot the piss out of the ball and, and that's that's a really valuable team-wide skill to have in this game um a couple of guys that i'm just really high on pj washington to charlotte yes i i love pj washington i had him as the fifth best player in this draft actually coming in on my my pre-draft scouting oh, wow. process um I think that he's going to be able to guard every position on the floor and every type of NBA athlete because he's got that long wingspan. He moves his feet really well. Uh, the biggest knock on him defensively is that he's a little bit overeager when he closes out, when he goes from help defense to guarding the ball. And I think with repetition and with time, like he's going to be able to trust his length and his instincts and and take uh, take that out of the equation for him where he's just a really sturdy, solid, dependable defender one through five i think he's a great small ball center at, at the next level um and another guy that i i really really liked uh was fiondu kevin going to brooklyn he's the perfect complement as a backup big to jarrett allen so um they can re- rest now knowing that they have some pretty good centers for the foreseeable future with with allen being the the defensive minded the rebounder the rim running screen and pogo stick and Kevin Gale being a guy who's no slouch on the defensive end either and doesn't sacrifice that, but can also come in and stretch the defense out as a stretch five for for long spurts. So two te- uh yeah, I the PJ Washington stuff, having both him and Miles Bridges, if you don't want to use Washington as the day sm- uh the small ball five, you need to have the right center around them. But I feel like Charlotte can do special things with those two defensively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um a team that I was concerned I have two teams and I guess the Thunder, they're not really counting. I'm just curious as to what you thought. I guess I understand trading down if you didn't want Brandon Clark. You don't really have the spacing to have Brandon Clark, although it does. It did say that they were shopping Steven Adams ahead of the draft. Um, I just don't understand. So you move down to 23. I, the Darius Baisley selection feels like it's a, it, like a boomer bust thing, but they yep. just they need shooting. And I don't know, like, immediate shooting and I just don't know why they wouldn't have been gone for just one of the better set snipers at this spot and maybe there's really only one and it's Kelvin Johnson who fell all the way to the Spurs at 29 but I was just I'm I'm struggling with the logic there a little bit yeah I I don't I don't have a good answer for you Dan um I think that he's a you know, in a draft that's this light on top tier talent and swinging for the fences, guys, like, sure, you take a shot at Baisley at 23, and that's not bad. But what other shit, like you said it too, what other shooters are really on the board there? Like, you could get a guy like a Ty Jerome or a Carson Edwards who are really good shooters, but you can't play them long term next to Russ Westbrook for a lot of minutes. Like, that, that doesn't fit what they need. They need a three and D wing. And Thibault was gone. Philly knew that they couldn't let him slip past um, Oklahoma City, which is why they they leapfrogged. You know, they were able to get up all the way to 20 to make sure that they got him. So I think that for for the Thunder, probably a, a large part of it was knowing that Philly was going to undercut them. They were kind of left trying to figure out what to do with the 11th hour. And I guess he does fit just the mold that the Thunder goes for, just positional flexibility and, yep. and good size. The other team that I'm actually concerned with is the Indiana Pacers. I don't, the TJ Warren trade, I do not mind, but the Kevin Pritchard comes out after the draft and says that, um, DeMantis Sabonis is going to end up playing a a ton of four. And that makes sense, I guess, because it means that they believe that 
Goga Batadze is going to end up playing right away. I don't, now that means TJ Warren has to be a three. I don't think he's especially quick enough or a good enough passer to be a three full time. I understand then you get into defensive issues with him at the four, particularly on the glass. And Indiana isn't this fantastic defensive rebounding team to begin with. Then they're linked to Ricky Rubio at, um, to, to fill their point guard void that they have right now. I'm very concerned about what this team's offense is going to look like next year because the pickings are slim for them. The type of players they need, um, they can still get, they can get max money, but I'm assuming, I know people are calling TJ Warren, um, Boyan Bogdanovich insurance in my mind, do not get rid of Boyan Bogdanovich. So I have them carrying his cap hold and they can still get above 20 million in room. And the, the need for the Pacers right now is an attacking playmaker who can get to the line without incinerating their floor balance. And I understand that's inherently hard to find. Ricky Rubio honestly or arguably exacerbates everything that's functionally wrong or, or could go wrong with them. And so I'm just, I don't know what to make of the direction they're going. And if they do end up getting rid of Bogdanovich, I'm going to be so much lower on them because they seem to be building just a very old school team. Yeah. I mean, let's say Bogdanovich leaves. I know he's been linked to the Lakers and a couple other teams that that are probably going to have interest in him. If Bogdanovich leaves and the ball's in Victor Oladipo's hands, who is the best shooter beside him on that team? Uh, I mean, we don't, if Darren Collison leaves, I, I, is it Aaron holiday at that point? I I honestly don't know. I don't. I don't have a clue. Maybe it's I mean, Miles Turner. <laughs> they have Doug McDermott signed. Oh, that's but, true. Yeah. Like it's just it's so many so many issues with the way that they've they've built their roster. And, and I've been a long proponent. I wrote about it earlier this winter that I think Demontis Sabonis is is a guy that they have to trade within the next at this point eight months. Um, they have to get a lot for him because if you pay a lot of money to keep him as a restricted free agent next summer. And you're putting him and Miles Turner next to each other. That, that's not great long term. Um, so I agree with you. There's some concern if you view Sabonis as a full time four. But um, I just I, I like the Batadze pick because it's a he's the best player available at 18 at that point in the draft. I've, I've had him as a top 10 guy. Um, I think there's a lot of things that he can do. He's a, he's a really intriguing piece and he's, he's still really young, but yeah, the spacing stuff is just, oof, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around. And it, even if Sabonis leaves or you trade him and so then you can say, well, Warren will play more at the four. You are kind of committing to Goga as your backup five then because he's, you don't want to play him and Turner together. That's not something that can happen. Correct. And, and again, it's, it's, you get caught sometimes in, in, draft stuff looking too much at fit and not enough at best player available like we talk about it so casually and nonchalantly from our vantage point like oh you don't like the players that's available or if there's a clear best guy that's still out there but he doesn't fit your roster just trade back like it's really hard to trade back and find a team that is willing to get into that spot and has the assets that that you desire like it's not easy so um, getting the best player available here, I, I don't think it's ever a strategy that I can look at and be like, that's just, it's bad. Like being a general manager is a hard job. Oh yeah. And, and it's a very, very hard job. So, um, you know, they still have a lot that they need to work through in Indiana for sure. But I don't think that the Batadze pick is necessarily the 
root of the, the issue here. I think that it's the long-term marriage of, of Turner and Sabonis. Well, Adam, thank you so much for giving me an hour of your time. It was fantastic talking uh, NBA draft reaction with you. I look forward to circling back to this podcast in a year, seeing how wrong I was about everything. (laughs) Me too. Me too, Dan. And I appreciate you having me on. It's always fun talking hoops here. Uh, if, If you guys are not following Adam on Twitter yet, Adam Spinella, or you can call him Spins. He's at Spinella14, S-P-I-N-E-L-L-A 14. He is the Dickinson College assistant men's basketball coach and a staff writer for the basketball writers. Once again, check him out at Spinella14. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Until next time, I leave you all with the shout-out to the one and the only, my forever, Highland. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.